0: Steve just out for a bike ride with my daughter she's eight and a half months old just took her for a uh, third bike ride um, in one of those chariot strollers she always seems to be the most, most quiet in the chariot stroller but uh, I, anyways I just wanted to say that I, I love listening to your podcast I really enjoy the, uh, the family aspect of it obviously because of my young daughter and hearing how you balance it all out and with work and uh loving to ride your bike anyways just uh appreciate you taking up the bike back Canada podcast
1: and and moving on to your own thing so I wish you all the best Devin Lees. Thanks for that voice intro. It's great to hear from you again. I believe you may have been the first person to send me an email when I was back doing the Bike Pack Canada podcast. I remember you and I remember you uh, saying that uh, I think you guys were expecting at the time. I don't know. I don't know if that's right, but I really appreciate your voice intro and how appropriate that it is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to everyone out there, all the fathers out there who are listening right now. I hope you had a great day. Um, I, I, uh, the first couple gifts I got this morning was a, a bit of a sleep in, which was nice. I slept till eight 30. That's why I might have a bit of a morning throat right now. <clears> throat> and then got up and, uh, there was a nice card on the table for me and, and a couple of my favorite things. So a few cups of uh, coffee and to go mugs and a little bag of cannabis. So I appreciate that 3.5 grams of BC blue widow and what a world we live in now where I can say that and not. feel fear that the cops are going to come busting down my door so happy father's day everyone uh i thought i would just tell a short father's day story about uh about my dad happy father's day dad um one day i was 13 years old and he uh, called me up from work and he said uh hey steven let's uh that's my given name steven steven let's um Let's ride to Bancroft, Ontario tomorrow from Deep River. Let's go see Grandma. I'm like, uh, okay, um, sure. You know, I had a road bike. We both had Peugeot. Um, I had a sport. My dad has a super sport. My dad was always doing stuff. <clears throat> He'd uh, commute to work at uh, Atomic Energy of Canada. Uh, I can't remember how far that was, but he would do that every day throughout the summer. And uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's probably where I got my, uh, my, I guess athletic drive was, uh, from my dad, my mom too. My mom was quite, a- quite active. She swam and, or swam, swam. She, sw- she went in water and flapped her arms around. <laughs> no, she did. She's a fantastic swimmer and she was a coach, um, uh, an instructor and lifeguard. So, uh, yeah, she was uh, no stranger to the water, but yeah, my dad called me up and he said, let's go, let's go riding. So we went to, uh, I believe it was, uh, called Brian cycle in Pembroke. We picked up some stuff. We picked up a couple helmets and uh, some spare parts, tubes, spokes, etc. I don't know what the hell we were going to do with the spokes because at that time I had no idea. I don't think my dad really knew how to how to fix a wheel if he snapped a spoke. But And uh, we hit the road. I think it ended up being about 200 kilometers. And it seems to me that we did it in like nine hours, which seems kind of crazy. But I guess that's on the road on a road bike. But that's kind of what I remember and then uh yeah we made it and uh, i cried because he he go through the one part of ontario it's through uh i'm not sure what the region would be called but man the climbs were just so so long and my dad is just so strong and powerful um he would just kind of leave me in the dust and i would just grind my way up a hill and get to the top and i would cry and it's like oh i can't do it it's you know it's it's mental man it's all in your head but um We finally made it to grandma's and, uh, yeah, and it was an awesome trip. And then we basically just ended up turning around the next day and riding home. And that's kind of my dad's MO. He's, uh, he's a tough motherfucker. (laughs) He's tough. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, brings back some fond memories, uh, riding bikes with him and, uh, and, uh, yeah. So happy father's day to my father. And, uh, I hope all your fathers and the fathers that are out there listening are having a great day so far. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to bring you this podcast. But first, I just wanted to say something. Um, our friend Doug Dunlop got hit by a frigging car, man. So those of you who follow Doug online probably already know this. Those of you who don't, give him a follow. Super, super wise bike packer guy. Very, very cyclist centric family. But uh, the dude got hit by a car, and uh, he's okay. He's uh, limping around. He's got some soft tissue tissue damage. Um, and uh, he's got this gnarly limp, I guess. But uh, I just wanted to wish Doug well uh, and a speedy recovery through this tragic event. And um, I just want to say, uh, let's look out for everyone. Let's look out for each other when we're out there. Whether we're walking, riding bikes, or in a car, let's, uh, let's be careful. Um, uh, bikes are hard to see. So make sure when you're riding a bike on the road, um, make sure that you, you always signal your intention. I know signaling a lot of people, you don't see a lot of people signaling anymore, but you don't have to do the official kind of using your left hand signal thing. Just point, just use, use whatever hand you have available and point where you're going to go. And, um, don't be afraid to take a lane. Um, so that you're, uh, you know, you're, it, if you're in the lane, you're going to be a lot more, uh, you're going to be easier to see. That's what I do. Um, I just, just take the lane and, uh, point where I want to go, and um, and also cars. Yeah, hey, make sure you look where you're going. It sounds like this lady might may not have been expecting a bike to be there. Um, regardless, you need to look around, make sure bikes. Uh, people on bikes are, are are pretty vulnerable, so let's uh, let's keep our eyes open out there on the roads and trails, and uh, let's take care of each other. Okay. I also wanted to send out a couple thank yous to some new patrons. And some new supporters to the My Back 40 podcast. Uh, Actually, I haven't uh, received uh, any um, uh, permission to use their names yet. So it's all happening kind of fast. But uh, those of you who have recently donated, you know who you are. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. You know, I love bringing these conversations to you. Um, uh, Recording and meeting and recording these conversations with people means a lot to me. And sharing it with you also means a lot. And uh, I can't do it without your help. Um, so I do have a support page set up, myback40.org/support. You can head on over there and check it out. Um, basically, um, if you want to support the podcast, if you donate 50 bucks, I'm gonna ship you a shirt and some decals. And uh, uh, I've already, yeah, I need to order some more shirts actually. Um, for those of you who have who have donated, who are in the shirt size medium. I'm going to be ordering some this week and then I'll be reaching out to try to get your address and uh, send you those shirts ASAP. And I hope you guys are liking the shirts. I, I You know, I, I, I like them. I think they're kind of nice. Um, I've almost worn the armpits out of mine. I've been wearing it so much as promotion. <laughs> but uh, I just want to yeah say again, thank you for for the support. And um, I'm really, really happy that everyone's resonating with the content I'm putting out there. So myback40.org slash support to check out the details on that. Also want to thank... Cycling 101 for being a supporter as well as Rebound Cycle. And um, yeah, without your help, um, I wouldn't be able to do some of the things I'm doing. So I really appreciate it. And uh, I have some promo codes. Cycling 101 is still offering their promo code 101VIP20. Reach out to them and you can save 20% off a bike fit or a consultation. If you're training up for a race coming up this summer and you need some help, reach out to Cycling 101. And uh, consult with Ryan or one of his other coaches and they can get you on the right track. And then also Ryan shared his ambassador code for NACBAR. so head on over to Nakbar, buy some uh, crickets, um, and if you spend over fifty bucks, you're going to save. Uh, are you going to save on the shipping? And if you use the promo code Ryan, you're going to save twenty percent off that purchase. So uh, go and check those sites out and uh, and uh, support my sponsors. Thanks. So today on the My Back Forty podcast, I bring you. Paul Brody, you know what, generally I kind of riff the intros a little bit, but uh, I just want to, I want to read this. This is on, on his wiki page. Paul Brody started Brody research and Tec- and technology in 1986 after leaving his frame building position with Rocky mountain bicycles, manufacturing custom steel, hardtail mountain bikes as the designer and builder of the first Vancouver trademark sloping top tube. He took the design on to develop what would become the modern mountain bike. Early frames were the catalyst, climax, sovereign, espresso, and Romax. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, I was, I said last week uh, with my podcast with Dale Marchand that I'd be talking to Paul. And I said that um, I was super nervous and I was. And, you know, I haven't done it too, too many times, but dude, I forgot to hit record (laughs) at the beginning of the conversation, which isn't the end of the world. But when we sat down, I said, hey, man, hey, Paul, I got something to show you. And I held up my, uh, my 1996 Brody Espresso, and uh, he just smiled, a big smile across his face, and I told him the serial number. And and uh, and uh, then I also held up a, um, a uh, I have it here on my desk right now, it's a um, it's a Brody brake booster. So when suspension came along, um, under heavy braking, the, uh, the, the slider and the stanchions would actually bow out, and it would reduce your braking um, strength so this arch was made of magnesium. It's like the, it's the, it's probably the lightest and strongest break arch of the time. And I have one in my hand right now it's red. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's like fucking what, 25 years old. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. This stuff's timeless. I love it. And, uh, it was such a pleasure to talk to Paul and you can really hear the passion in his voice. And, uh, uh, I would encourage you guys to, to go onto YouTube search for Paul Brody. And he actually has, uh, he does these uh, short, like 20 minute videos and he does these projects. Like he's a master craftsman. He's an excellent teacher. He's, he's a super down to earth guy. And, uh, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And without further delay, I bring you Paul Brody. Thanks for taking the time to connect with me. I think it's fantastic. Um, I've been a Brody fan for a long time. Thank you. So, um, I've I kind of been thinking I, I kind of wanted to put together like a, a frame builder series. So I reached out to you. Well, it was about just a couple of weeks ago and then I ended up connecting with uh, Dale Marchand who took your uh, frame building one oh one course. Yes. Uh, Rolling Dale bikes. I guess he's been building some frames for folks in the Valley and, um, or up in uh, Alberta and around uh, Alberta and BC. And then, um, then you reached out. So it's going to be a great little uh, kind of a, uh, You bounce those two uh, conversations off one another because he had nothing but good things to say about the course and about meeting you. And um, yeah, you're kind of legendary in the industry. So, again, I appreciate your time. So, why don't you tell me a little bit about Paul Brody? Where did you, uh, what's your story? Where did you grow up?
0: I was born in England. Whole family came over here when I was nine. Always had an interest in motorcycles, bicycles. Always two wheels, and uh, I made my first frame. It was a mini bike. It's in the book. I was twelve years old. That's my that, that was my first bike that I built.
1: You built that primarily on your own. Uh, I had a
0: little bit of help from my father. Yeah, uh, he. I didn't know how to weld because I was only in grade seven when I started that, and I so he was a welding in, inspector and he he knew a, a welder so we set up a deal whereby i paid for lunch and the welder welded up the frame it was arc welding on on <laughs> on, on basically water pipe you know there was no there was no chrome nothing i made the frame uh, i made the frame jig out of wood two by fours and plywood and then I got into grade eight, and I learned how to braise, and so I braised up the forks. And so the whole bike, it, it took me about a year. It cost me $115 to build. I rode it for about six, eight months, and then I sold it for $84.
1: That's awesome. It stayed together, so you did a good job with those welds, I guess, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I used to ride it up at, up at UBC, which, which – there's there's no way you can do that now, but that was back in, that would have been 1967, long okay. time ago.
1: Yeah, that was a little while ago. I lived in Vancouver briefly and I used to go over there to, um, to ride, I was living kind of behind um, the North Burnaby Inn, in some apartments there. And I would spin down and climb up and, and do some of, uh, go up to SFU and kind of ride down there. It was a trip though for me back when I wasn't in very good shape riding across the city <laughs> to ride there but yeah that's cool that brings back some fond memories. So that that your life of fabrication began kind of very young to, when you were a teenager and did it did it continue from there like just expanding and learning and building
0: be making things out of metal for 53 years now.
1: That's amazing. I was reading yeah. about a little bit about the um the the motorcycles you've been restoring which are uh, they called, um, uh, uh, board track racing bikes or something. Excelsior board tracker. Tell me about those. Tell me about that whole thing. It's
0: not a, it's not a restoration because I, I basically make the whole motorcycle. I make the engine scratch. and everything Amazing. from scratch. And, uh, I, I started that project in 2005 and, uh, I've made six, I've sold four, I'd like to sell some more. And then I went down to Florida last year in March because there's a race down there called Sons of Speed. And they and they race these old bikes around the New, New Smyrna Speedway, which is a, a NASCAR track. And so I was basically 3,590 miles from home. I did one lap and the throttle stuck. and. That's how I broke my leg and ended up in hospital oh, down wow. in Florida. So that was a close call because I, I think I almost died. They took me to hospital in a, in a helicopter. Yikes. So down it was, uh, anyway, I survived. I'm, I'm back riding motorcycles. I'm back riding mountain bikes and, uh, I'm not going to go road racing anymore, but I still like to ride.
1: Since we're on the motorcycle topic, we'd kind of, uh, you had mentioned that you you're riding trials as well right
0: i am yes i went trials riding today and that's why that's why i have a sore rib because I, oh, no. <laughs> no. I took a tumble i took a tumble
1: i'd say a gnarly activity i i did a bit of that in squamish and um i remember the way i came into it i was i was climbing up um um, oh, I can't remember the name of the trail now. It's in Crumpet Woods in Squamish. And I could hear uh, uh, coming behind me. And I was like, oh, it's probably just a trials guy. And it was my buddy, Rick. And he said, um, I'll do a loop and I'll meet you at the top. And it's kind of a, a technical descent. So I got to the top and we chatted for a bit. And I basically followed him down and he had his motor off. And he was just like doing the descent, like he was on this cushy downhill bike. And I knew right there, it's like, I got to get a trials bike because it looked like so much fun. Because it's hard work, right? It's it's actually a lot harder than I think people give it credit for, or don't don't give it credit for. But it's it's tough, man. It's uh, and when you come off, it can be a real big deal. What kind of what kind of stuff are you riding on your trials bike?
0: Uh, I'm not an expert. I'm sort of a middle of the pack rider. I would I would call I would call myself. So I just you know I like to do rocks and logs and trails things like that. I am competitive, but, you know, there's no trials right now because of the of the virus. They've shut that down.
1: That's that's crazy. I yeah. didn't want to talk too much about COVID, really, but uh, did, were you sneaky? Were you sneaking in there, riding illegally? <laughs> no, no. It's open no, now? It's all,
0: no, oh. it's, a, it's been open the whole time. Oh, so, I see. You know, we just, uh, because my surname is Brody. I have to go on the 8L and they alternated between Saturdays and Sundays and we have to distance how we park and then we only ride in groups of three. So, you know, we abide by the rules. Oh, that's great. And it's uh, it's good.
1: Do you do contests on your trials?
0: Uh, yeah, I've, I've done trials. There's no trials right now. That's what I, I was saying because uh, uh, you know, the guy who was organizing the trials, he didn't he didn't want to be in the clubhouse handling $10 bills and having everybody everybody breathing. So that's basically what got, got canceled, but I'm sure that maybe in a few months it'll come back.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a good time. It's a fun sport to get into. I think when my knees give out, from, from riding single speed too much, then I'll probably end up getting a trials bike. But uh, for now, I'm going to stay without the motor, I think. I can't afford it anyway. I can't afford the, you go out for a, for a weekend of trials and you you break 100 bucks worth of parts and fenders and levers, or at least I did <laughs> as a rookie. So uh, what were the early days of uh, frame building like? Tell me about, uh, so you, you, you've built frames for Rocky Mountain bikes and Kona as well?
0: No, no built any bikes for Kona. They used to, uh, they used to be our, our distributor for a while. And then there was a lawsuit we don't have to get into, but you know, basically I'm a, I'm a, I'm a self-taught frame builder because there was no school back then. I started in 84 at Rocky and there was a guy named, uh, a, a Derek Bailey there. And one of the first things he said to me was that I'm not going to show you anything. <laughs> there's a there's a sort of a mentality among some older people that they don't want to share knowledge and so I still learn from him anyway because I was at the bench alongside him and I would watch him and I would pick up his good habits and his bad habits I didn't know the difference at that point and so I I made some mistakes when I was learning but I did get better because I, I applied myself and I, I wanted to be better. And, uh, and then ultimately, I ended up teaching frame building in, in Frame Building 101. And I like sharing my knowledge. Mm. I'm not one of those people who wants to hang on to knowledge because I realize that even if I show you how to do something, it doesn't mean that you can do it. Because y- you might not have the same tools or the same hand-eye coordination experience, whatever. So I'm very happy to share. And actually, that's what I'm doing right now. I've got ai got a YouTube series going. And it's called "It's Paul Brody Shop. And I'm sharing what people call uh, the secrets. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> I don't know if they're secrets, but I'm sharing them anyway. So...
1: Well I'm sure as you sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, it's uh,
1: good. I was gonna say, I, you know, I'm sure um I can kind of I, I can kind of appreciate maybe what that uh, that guy that you're kind of mentoring off standing beside you, he probably went through a rough time learning his trade too, right? So he's just like, Man, no one held my hand. So, you know, you're on your own, Paul, kind of thing. But uh I think it's important that, you know, one of the one of the I think the skills of learning is to be able to observe. Right. And process and look at what people are doing and try to take stuff from that and apply that, you know, yourself in your I, own fabrication.
0: I think the whole thing of using our hands, I think that's a dying art because not many people make things anymore. It's it's too easy to, you know, go on the internet and add to cart, click and all that. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm a real proponent of using your hands and being creative, and if I can help someone in that aspect, I will.
1: Let's talk a bit about that because that's kind of resonates with me a little bit as the idea of creativity, you know, in life. Just, just to create a happy life, I think it's good to have a creative outlet. And so, you've always been a fabricator. Um, Has that lost any? I'm trying to say does it give you a lot of meaning personally to be able to make these things and to like back in the day, making, making a frame and watching someone ride out the door with that, does that kind of give you a lot of meaning? Sure. I,
0: I hope that I can always make things uh, as long as, as, as I'm able to. And I, I still get excited about making stuff. I haven't, I haven't lost that excitement, even though I'm well, well, 65 i guess i'm i'm supposed to be retired right you know i, I got a couple pensions coming in now but uh, i still want to make stuff and so having it having this youtube channel it's it's interesting because each week i have to think up a project which is gonna work well in that format because we film for anywhere from Uh, two to four hours and then it gets cut down at at a 12 to 15 minutes so I have to come up with a a project each week I think we've done eight weeks so far eight projects and you know I mean I get some work in my shop and and I think to myself well no I don't think that's very good for YouTube but then other things are, are, are good so what's upcoming now is is there's a young engineering student and uh his his project for the thesis is a electric mountain bike so he doesn't know how to weld he doesn't have a shop, but he's designed it and he's getting some parts made like the down tube that's going to hold the two batteries and then i'm going to be the fabricator who puts it together and so i think that's going to be one of the youtube videos and then i I've got this other friend up in Squamish and he wants a uh, electric trials bike. So he's asked me if I could, if I could build a frame for that. Cause I've, I've got motorcycle, uh, a frame building experience. So I said, yeah, maybe, you know, we can do that because that might look good on YouTube as well. <laughs> so everything kind of runs, uh, Uh, through my brain now whether or not it could be used on the channel if that makes sense
1: no it totally does you want to i I think fans of fans of you probably wouldn't care (laughs) what you put up there they're going to learn something from you but um yeah that sounds like a really cool project electric trials bike i can't imagine the torque you'd get out of that like splattering splattering up in up in loco with that thing You just you just twist the throttle just a tiny bit and the thing would take off (laughs) it'd be hard to control
0: yeah, it's got it's got maximum torque at, at zero RPM, but uh, I think <laughs> I think uh, on those bikes you need a clutch as as well because it's not really good when you're at the base of a of a, of a steep climb. It it's not quite like a, a trials bike with a motor. So if they put a clutch in there, then it's you got the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, you'd probably have to change your entire riding style to ride something like that. You think?
0: um it's possible i've never ridden electric trials bike so we'll but uh you would have to get used to it it would have a different uh a characteristic as the power cuts in or it comes on
1: yeah well it must yeah it must bring you a lot of meaning doing stuff like that um so when you're building these these things from scratch like um what was the learning curve like to build a um, uh, engine parts and 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 parts like that from from scratch, from bare bones. Like was your first, did your first bike kind of take forever? Or a motorcycle, you know, in motorcycle, cause you said you were building the whole thing from scratch, which just blows my mind. Um, what's the learning curve like for that? It's pretty
0: darn steep. <laughs> And so there was, oh, okay, I, ca- I can tell you one story. We got number one because, you know, I've done several Excelsiors. And, and so we fired up number one in the backyard and then we checked to see that the oil was circulating and the oil wasn't circulating because what I'd done is I designed the oil pump, but I designed it backwards. <laughs> oh, no. It was, it was going the wrong way.
1: Like the impeller was the facing the right way, but it was go- spinning the wrong way kind of thing.
0: Well, there's gears, right? Oh, okay. It's two gears, and, and and I assume that when the gears spin, that that the oil goes through the middle of the gears, but it doesn't. It goes around the gears. It goes the other way, and I just I made an assumption just based on. I don't know. I don't know what I was assuming on, and it was it was a, it was wrong. It was <laughs> it was completely wrong. W-
1: what's the fix for that? Is that something you, you... Uh,
0: It was to redesign the oil pumps, Completely. which had al- al- already had CNC'd out of bronze. So they went five grand. Oh, my God. And so I, <laughs> I, was, I was giving them away as, as paperweights because they do make really nice paperweights.
1: How many did you make that were incorrect?
0: I did 20.
1: Oh, no. How many hours on the machine was that? Just no, I just materials.
0: no, I just paid i I paid the CNC shop, oh. and so that's why I said it was five grand because that was that was the bill for the oil pumps, and they oh were they were all scrapped, but they were really nice.
1: <laughs> you, should you should auction those. Auction those off. Uh, I don't
0: know. It's just <laughs> I don't know who would want to pay. I just give them to people. So.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. So we've been jumping around a little bit between motorbikes and bikes and back and forth. Um, so back in those early days of frame building, what, what kind of was the catalyst for starting Brody bikes back then?
0: I was working at Rocky mountain and they were paying me $8 an hour. And I asked for a raise up to $10 an hour. And they said, no. And I was realizing that You know, frames out in the in the world were often a frame and fork frame set was selling for seven hundred and fifty dollars, and so I just thought if I make up all my own jigs and get some tubing, then I'm in I'm in business. So that was that was kind of how how it worked out. I was I was unsatisfied at making eight dollars an hour. Mm. I'm actually actually for eight eight dollars an hour, I was a frame builder. I was. uh, a frame designer, I was the shop, uh, a superintendent and I was the spray painter too. Oh, so, okay. so, 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 so I think Rocky was getting a pretty good deal for a while.
1: Yeah, they were. What, what,
0: way, way, back, way back when,
1: what year was that? I'm thinking, trying to think. Eight, that would
0: eight have been now. uh 19, 19- that was 1985 because I started I started Brody Bikes in May of 86. That's May. the same month I got married, and, and I started the business. It was under the sun deck of the house that I owned with my sister in East Vancouver off Fraser Street.
1: Okay. That house is still there? Yep, still there. So you're just doing it in your garage? Yeah, yeah.
0: and it was interesting because, you know uh, – uh, a customer would come by and often often give me cash and I always had this big water cash in my pocket. <laughs> I like to have seven hundred dollars i don 't know why it was seven hundred dollars, but I just thought that if I ever go anywhere and I want something, I can just buy it <laughs> and, and so and so we were in that in that in that basement you could call it for two years, and I always had that cash and as soon as we moved out to a commercial place and started paying rent mm. and phone and insurance and accounts i never had money in my pocket again yeah. it 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 really it really changed a lot but that was that was one of the things that was happening as i was growing the business and 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 also i was i was thinking about this last night about those those early days it be, because there was a uh, a sense in the in the bicycle business because it was the mountain bike boom right it was just growing at a incredible rate we'd go to trade shows and like in Ge- in germany for example and people would come up and say i'd like to sell you bikes i'd like to order 100 frames you know just like that and so it was incredible and i i think that uh myself and a lot of other people uh, uh, thought uh, the growth rate would just keep on going but in hindsight I should have looked at my history lessons because what happens in a in a new industry is there's the growth and then there's the period of maturing and then it tapers off and so right when we were at the peak of of the growth that's when, I moved the shop into this huge five thousand square foot premise, which was a complete mistake. Yeah. So, I should have done my history lessons.
1: Well, hindsight's always I, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? It's funny. I was just, yeah, but, but I yeah. just I,
0: I just should have I just should have done some history lessons because that you know that kind of thing where an industry takes off, it always. Always tapers off nothing ever keeps growing forever. Nothing
1: I was just talking to somebody about that today. I don't know what business we were talking about, but it was it was basically the idea of 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 just constant growth. It just doesn't seem realistic like um you see these companies that just grow and grow and they're always pushing the growth and pushing the growth, and then they just fizzle out where I think it would be more more beneficial to kind of when you hit that plateau just hit that maintenance mode, you know. Like, do I like what I do? Do I like building these frames, maintenance mode, and then just kind of like cruise a little bit? What do you think?
0: Yeah, but it's that it's that human quality. It's mm. known as 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 greed. Everybody wants more, more, and yeah. it's hard to be satisfied with a sustainability. So. I'm a big believer in in sustainability now and I'm 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 trying to model my own lifestyle after that, you know, not not wanting a new car and you know being happy with what I have and so forth. So, I'm trying to make that a part of my
1: life. I think that's what's so great about steel bikes is they just they're forever, right? That's why I kept this thing cuz it's like, well, I'll build that eventually into something. The bike we were talking about earlier, the espresso. But um yeah, like most of my bikes, I don't have I have a fat bike, a salsa fat bike. That's the newest bike I have. That's like I got last year. But the other two bikes, I have two Chrome eggs that uh that I bought that are built. Well, I think Mike True Love might have welded them both, actually. And I think I think Chris DeKurf painted my uh my fat bike. So when I reached out to you, I was just super pumped because I mean back in the day, like like that that th- that group of names like you'd see DeKerf bikes or Brody bikes like my uh, my friend Allison McDonald she had a I think she had a Climax it was just such a sweet bike right but they're so different now like what's the head tube angle on this bike this espresso is it like 71
0: well for a long time we we had head angles of, of of 70.5 and then there was a lot of pressure from the industry and other people that Because everyone was going a little steeper for the, I saw the bike was more flickable in the single track. So we went up to 71.2.
1: That's steep.
0: Well, back in those days, that was normal. And now, I mean, I got a mountain bike I'm riding and it's 68, but I ride with a couple friends and one of them has a a Cro-Mag that's 64 degrees.
1: That's the Dr. Hawk, I think. And it, it it's just... called a
0: sur- it, it's called a surface. That's, oh, it is the that's surface. The it, it, it's about it's about seven eight years old, but he seems to ride that pretty good. So,
1: oh, I didn't think See. they were doing sixty fours back then. I thought that was kind of a new thing. Mm-hmm. I have a surface here. That's my um, my single speed. My twenty nine is a surface. I can't. It, it's not. It's not sixty four though. That's for sure. But it's way like it's actually a real. I think it's a sixty. 67 maybe 68 I'd have to look up the specs but it's a it's a good angle actually like I, I can't I, I figured that something in the 64 would be so floppy you know
0: I watch him ride that bike because we go out e- each week on Fridays and he doesn't seem to be floppy. No, he uh, he seems fine on it.
1: So. You know what I mean when I say that, right? Like the just it just seems like that front end would just be like yeah. So floppy. I know
0: exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah,
1: but he seems
0: fine on it.
1: Of course. What do you what do you think about the um? What do you think about all that? The all the geometry tra- changes. Like I'm seeing like super steep seat tubes now, super super relaxed front ends. Like what's the from a design point of view? What's the um? what are they trying to accomplish in doing that is, do you think it's just kind of marketing or is there a function to that?
0: Well, I've, I've never tried a bike with a 64 degree head angle, but I think that, so I didn't ride a mountain bike for over 20 years. Cause I was, I was doing other stuff. I was road racing. I was riding trials bikes and that. So I got back into, into mountain biking last year and what I notice is the trails are a lot rougher than what they used to be. A lot more rocks, a lot more drop-offs and things like that. So I think having a slack head angle and also a longer travel fork because, you know, when I was riding and I was racing, stock fork travel was 50 millimeters, <laughs> which, which, which sounds nuts now, right?
1: It's bananas. Yeah.
0: So, that, but but that was normal back then. So, I think if you got a long, longer travel fork and a slack angle, it's going to help you on the downhills
1: for sure. Yeah, that angle of attack, right? Is so. Yeah, it just
0: means you're less likely to go over the bars sometimes because the front wheel's out farther. And you've also got a long travel fork. And and also the wheels are bigger too, right? Mm. So the wheels roll over obstacles a lot better than a, a 26.
1: Me- mechanically, what's the strain like on the head tube at that angle? Like if someone does like an eight foot drop to say flat, which probably wouldn't happen, uh, the strain, well, the, the stress must be so high.
0: Well, what they've done with these with these bikes is that, it's a 29-inch wheel often and then they got the longer fork so that's a big lever and yeah. then you don't want you don't want the handlebars to be way up in the air so what they what they usually do is to put on a really short head tube so that means they're loading up the bearings quite a lot but seems to work so it <laughs> seems to <laughs> no one's yeah, losing their teeth <laughs> i mean i'm not in a bike shop i don't know how often people on these bikes with short head tubes are getting their headsets replaced i have no oh, idea interesting. yeah but if you got a chris king headset or something like that it, it should last a long time
1: yeah they're pretty bomber it's funny when you say the short travel the first suspension fork i remember getting was um i don't know if it had a model but it's like the manitou um, like the first gen one, I had that Manitou, the first gen, the gray one with the elastomer bumpers in it. And that was, that was the shit, man. We we're riding that thing around Whistler. People are like, Whoa, look at that, man. It was just how it had like maybe two inches of travel. Not even, maybe an inch and three quarter of travel. Yeah. That's so that funny.
0: 50 millimeters. Yeah. yeah. It's
1: so crazy. And, and the, the amount you could see it, especially in technical terrain, you could see it twisting and quivering under you. It was it was so like just noodly and slack. Oh, it was crazy stuff we rode and it didn't break. So someone's doing a good job, right? <laughs> That's awesome. So tell us about your, um uh, the Frame Building 101 course. When did you start doing that?
0: I started that in September of, of 2010. And, uh so i've done nine and a half years i've had 65 classes never missed a day i i really like teaching it's uh Mm. it's good for me but i don't know if the course is going to continue because the virus has affected things and and there's some other changes going on at the university so i i don't know what's i don't know what the future is for frame building 101
1: could you do that Uh, on your own in in a garage or in your shop there you think
0: A lot of people have said, why don't you do it in your own shop? But some of the drawbacks are that, you know, the university has uh, Mm. insurance and it's kind of nice to be associated with a university. And if I do it at my home, I don't really have any separation between home and work. So, and then I'd have to get some kind of a paper signed, Uh, a paper drawn up by a legal person a lawyer and so that if someone were to be here and they they cut their finger or something I wouldn't get sued because I don't have a company anymore it's just me so that would be a real shame if I lost my property because somebody injured themselves while I'm trying to show them how to build a frame so it's, it's not a perfect situation and also with the with the virus, it's, I, I just know when I'm, I'm teaching, I'm teaching people how to build frames. I don't stand six feet away. I'm always, I'm always closer. Right. You know, you hold the torch and, you know, looking over their shoulders sometimes. And so I don't, not sure how to teach from six feet away.
1: Especially teaching people how to do something with their hands, right? Like you need to, yeah. Yeah. Those are all, completely valid points like yeah you wouldn't want to do that at home and get someone have someone get hurt so no yeah
0: so i'm on i'm unsure what the future for that is so that's partly why you know when the when the causes got canceled i thought well i got to do something and so that's that's when i came up with the idea for a youtube channel and one of the guys that i I ride with Mitch anytime we go riding I'm always lost because I'm slow with my with my funny leg because I I don't want to I don't want to re injure my leg so and I come down the trail and he's filming he's got his he's got his phone out and he's he's filming us going down the trail so I thought this guy really likes video maybe he wants to do some more filming so I approached him and he was all for it he so i think we're a good team that's that's awesome
1: so do you, how many episodes do you have up right now
0: i think we got 8
1: so behind the ball man how come i didn't know about this i didn't do well, my, i didn't a, do my research paul
0: <laughs> well there's other people that don't know either so i'm i'm encouraging people to subscribe we've you know we've been doing this for 2 months now we've got I think two hundred and fifty subscribers, the last one where I showed how to take a a dent out of a top tube, I guess a lot of people really liked that one because we got like fifty or sixty new subscribers just over that one uh, lost my words
1: that's okay that's so that, that one that one video came up right, and
0: yeah, yeah.
1: It's funny because that's the one that popped into my feed. So I think that's an algorithmic thing probably like, you know, YouTube, you know, just the way they massage things around and yeah, it popped up in mine too. Um, Yeah. I'll have to watch that one. I did see that. Um, Who's denting top, top tubes nowadays. I haven't, I haven't, I don't Uh, think uh, I've ever dented a bike. Maybe I'm not pushing it hard enough. (laughs) Probably the case. Well,
0: it's it's a steel frame and I I got this frame used from, owner of a local local bike shop i i think he was clearing out a couple years ago and he he came out and gave me two old rocky mountain frames so that's what i'm working on rocky mountain frames which is (laughs) which is kind of cool because that's that's how i started in the in the frame building business with rocky mountain yeah so we just made a on on the last episode we shot on tuesday i modified a head a head tube holding fixture and then after i got the tool finished we checked the head tube seat tube alignment on that same frame that i fixed the dent on yeah and 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 the alignment was out quite a bit so i i straightened it on the surface table and it took quite a bit of force and so you can really see how the tubes were bending i bent the tube down i bent the seat tube down oh probably inch and a quarter so it's putting a lot of stress on the frame but that's that's how you align a frame you you put force into it so i think what people like about some of the series is they they actually uh, get to see how frames get worked on because it is in some people's minds a little bit like a a black art
1: mm-hmm.
0: I I know that when I started working in a bicycle shop in 84 and there was talk around the shop that if you ever got invited to a frame builder's place that was a pretty special moment and if he showed you his frame building jig that was like that <laughs> was like the holy grail right <laughs> because there was talk that if you went to a frame builder's place He'd often hide the jig because, <laughs> really? he, because he didn't want you to see it. You know, that's what we talked about back in 84. And so when I started, I, I knew I was going to be building frames. And so I went to the library because I thought I'd take out a book on jigs and fixtures. Well, there wasn't really anything there. There was one, one book I took out, but it was pretty useless. And basically what I learned is that a jig is a dance and a fixture is someone who's been at a company for a really long time.
1: <laughs> so I mean, that's so funny. So, did you hire your jig when people come over to your house?
0: Oh yeah, because it's all different now. Because you can go online, you can you can look up a jig, and you can add it to your cart, and you can have if you got a visa that's got some credit limit that's enough for a jig five four five six thousand dollars you can have a jig but you know in in those days when I started there was no internet and there was no books that I knew of of frame building or anything so it was just kind of learn as I go so that's that's basically my how I've learned to do a lot of stuff I'm just self-taught I just get in there and I figure it out somehow I talk I, I talk to different people. That's one of the things I do. If I if I need some knowledge on something, I'll I always start making phone calls or I'll figure out which friend because I got a lot of smart friends that have a lot of skills in, in different areas. And I'll I'll figure out the one I should talk to and then we'll have a little bit of a brainstorming session. And usually within fifteen minutes, half an hour I'm on I'm on some new track. I've 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 figured out where to find that knowledge or that information. So that's that's kind of how I work. It's not it's not like working in a vacuum. It's good to it's good to brainstorm.
1: I think it's good to to admit sometimes when you don't know something. You know, oh, like,
0: there's lots I don't know. You have lots. to.
1: It's the only way to learn, right? And you count on your buddies and your friends to to teach. But you're you're so right. We have it so easy with the internet, like like having all this information at our fingertips, you know, and like what you were saying before at the beginning of the podcast, just about people not building stuff with their hands anymore, you know, and, um, I, I'm pretty sure my next bike is going to be a custom bike. And when when you, when you tell people it's like, oh, here's my bike. And they're like, they always ask how much it costs. Right. And it's like, well, I mean, the frame sets, uh, $2,000 <laughs> or $1,500. And they're like, what? It's like you can buy a, you can buy a bike, a Canadian tire for $200. And you try to explain to them. Yeah. But, and I've always thought this about, um, my, my surface, my chromatic surface is it's made by somebody like, you know, that someone made it with their hands and, and one it's, and it's made in Canada which is pretty awesome. And even some of their billet parts, right? You know, you make all your own stuff. It's made in Canada, but there's this intangible about it and they have soul. And it's really hard to explain that to someone. I feel it. When I ride a a floor bike, I'm just like, oh, it's a floor bike. Whatever. It's got off the floor. It's got parts on it. But when you ride a handmade bike, there's something different about it. And I don't know, maybe that's just my consciousness telling me that, but...
0: No, I I I think that's valid, and 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 I think there's one more uh, uh, a step that you have to add when you make your own frame, and then you put it together and you write it. That's another little step because oh, you have have created that frame, and so this, you know, this it's just something special about making a frame, and then you ride it. Yeah, I'm not I talking about.
1: Is. I'm not talking about making my own frames, but but just riding someone who's riding a frame that someone had made. But yeah, that would be a totally different step. I'd I'd be really nervous, actually. I'd be afraid that I didn't do a good job and it's gonna fall apart.
0: Well, that's <laughs> funny. Well, that's why you, if you are building the frame, it's it's good to have someone helping you or or mentoring you or at least you know giving you a little bit of insight into the steps. That's all good.
1: How many of your students go on to um, to build commercially, either for other companies or just for themselves?
0: Less than five yeah. percent. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it it's not an easy way to make money. It's when people look at frame building, I think they get kind of a a romanticized idea of what it is, but as I found out. You know, a long time ago when I was working for Rocky and I started making frames and I realized how much work it was. And I actually said to myself one night, what have I got myself into? <laughs> it's it's a lot of work building frames. There's not a lot of shortcuts and you've you got to go through that whole process and it it takes time. And if you're doing large runs of frames, like over 20, you can get bogged down. And that's another thing that happens to some frame builders too. That's why it's good to keep the runs small. If if Mm -hmm. you can, you know, do runs of 10, because then you don't get bogged down like in big, big runs.
1: Yeah. it would probably be get a little bit monotonous after a while, especially if you're doing big runs of frames like that, it could get pretty monotonous. Um, after talking to Dale, he had mentioned um, something I, I didn't really fully grasp. It's like I, I probably had that romantic idea as well, but but the infrastructure needed to to build a frame, like with uh, tooling and and jigs and whatnot, it's it's formidable. There is a lot to consider. It's not like you are putting tubes on the table and welding them up, you know. There is there seems like there is so many more layers to that that a lot of people kind of don't realize. Um, you, you need you need a jig or a
0: fixture or a holder or something for basically almost every step of the way. You know, for putting on a braze on, for putting on a seat seat pinch lug, for whatever. You need something to hold it because it it it's not going to hold itself in the air while you get the torch out. <laughs> you gotta you gotta have something there.
1: Yeah, and so, so you. You make all that stuff yourself, right?
0: Uh I did, yes, because um I am kind of frugal and when I was doing this back all those years, I don't I don't know where where I would buy all that stuff. It's only in the last probably 10-15 years or so that lots of well 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 some people have been making frame jigs like Anvil and uh and there's some other jigs as well that have become well well known. So it's uh yeah it's a process and and then also frame building schools there's UBI and some other ones down in the states and then I was doing frame building 101 up here in Canada so I know that Mike Trulove he was he was a little concerned when I started frame building 101 he says you're gonna teach all these people how to build frames and then that's maybe it's going to cut into my business and i said mike don't worry i said you're a really good frame builder. And you've been doing it for years these people are all kind of rookies they're just learning if i wanted a frame i wouldn't buy a frame off a rookie i'd want to build it off. i'd want to buy it off an experienced builder like you so i think he's fine with it now because he doesn't mention that anymore
1: <laughs> is is he um welding for chromag or is he building for for chromag and or does he do stuff on Um, his own
0: i think he builds for chromag mostly i i don't really know exactly i i know right now he has a full-time job welding somewhere and maybe it was it was a shipyards for a while and then he's also building for chromag so
1: legends these legendary builders right they don't have anything to worry about these people aren't going to cut in on, on their business i don't think
0: I think legend. Speaking of that word, I think legend means old. That's what no, I've come to realize. No, <laughs> that's, what,
1: that's what I think. <laughs> that's a story you're telling yourself. No, man, I wouldn't. Um, no, you're a legend. Don't. It's not old. It's uh, it's you just wisdom, and it's it's awesome that you're sharing that wisdom with with other people too, right? Like what you're saying before. You know, everything's so hush hush, but it's yeah, it's good to share. And by sharing, you you learn as well, right? Like learning learning's a yeah. lifelong process.
0: In frame building 101, you know, I'm sharing my knowledge, but I'm also learning as well because the student comes in and says, "I'd like to do this." You know, okay, for example, there was one time when the student wanted a really skinny top tube like an inch and he wanted a really thick down tube like inch and a half, and I said, "Really?" because I I never would have done that. And there were, I think there was four students in that class, but he He kind of insisted, and there was nothing really wrong with it. I just wouldn't have done that because I like the top tube and the down tube to match more. Mm. But after he made the frame, we all agreed that it was pretty cool. It had a look to it. but So that's just one instance where I learned something by a student doing something that I never would have done.
1: Well, it's certainly a it's certainly a craft, right? So it's it's you know there's obviously artistic uh, expression in that as well. So I think that's cool that he's stuck by his guns, and as long as it's strong enough, right? I guess.
0: Oh, it was yeah. It's a strong frame. He's got this huge down tube, <laughs> and the top tube is in compression, so it's fine. Right. Okay. And he he never sent me an email and said it broke or anything like that. So I'm I'm assuming that it's
1: all good still. Good news, that's good news. So, um, what was kind of some of your biggest successes with with Brody Bikes? Um,
0: successes.
1: Well, is that a hard question?
0: Um. No, I think in uh, I know mountain I know mountain bike action used to put out the most innovative list of the year, and and I think the Gator blade was number thirteen out of out of, out of twenty. That was kind of a a neat thing to have uh, a big mountain bike magazine at the time recognize a design and. Uh, yeah, the Gatorblade fork, we could talk about that really briefly. We had this a new design for a, a rigid fork and that was 1988 and we went down to the Interbike show and that was at I think Long Beach or LA, something like that, and that's when RockShox came out with their RS1. So we had this hot fork that we thought everyone would be really keen on, but the buzz was rock shock magnesium fork legs 50 millimeters of travel (laughs)
1: is that the mag 21
0: uh no that was uh, i think the i think the rs1 was the very first one i i used to think it was the mag 20 but then i got corrected so rs1 came out first and then the mag 20 came out right on its heels that was such a hot seller for rock shock everybody wanted that fork there was a buzz.
1: Well, sus- so, suspension, right? Like, yeah, there's yeah, no it stopping was, it.
0: No, it's here to stay. But, and, and so now the Gatorblade fork, it's a, a collector's item. One sold in Europe for 600 euros, which at that time was $900. And, and so what what happened with that fork? We only ever sold them at cost. We never made any money off the fork because we couldn't mark them up much because there wasn't a lot of demand because the rock shark was well and and the manitou you know those were the two forks that were in demand
1: and now there seems to, it seems to be swaying back a little bit because you know I, i'm i'm kind of involved pretty heavy in the back the bikepacking world as well and um i mean people are still running suspension but i think for some for some tracks um i'd rather just have a rigid fork you know, just low maintenance <laughs> and you can mount stuff to it. You know, um, I think there's a comeback. There's a comeback with rigid forks.
0: I think 26 inch wheels are going to come back one day. Do you? Oh, probably in about 15 years. People are going <laughs> to say, it's a small wheel. It's great. It's so light and strong. That's my own opinion. And maybe, maybe I'm way out to lunch, but it seems like, you know, there's, everything has a cycle of 30 years or True. whatever it is. You know, the mullets coming back. or oh, I don't know. Just...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, well, what I could say about, you know, when I switched to, to a 29, a 29er is whenever you're riding with people who had, um, 26 inch wheels and you were riding behind them. Um, you ne- never had to pedal. Like they were pedaling constantly. They just didn't have the gear inches. Right. And they, they didn't have that rollover. So, you, you ride behind a 26 inch wheel bike and you're, you're coasting most of the time, just pumping the train. And they're like, eh, just spinning, spinning, spinning. I don't know if they're going to come back, man. I don't know. 26 fat. I have a 26 fat bike. So maybe that's the best use for them. 26 inches. And then what, what happened with, uh, did you just kind of decide that you wanted to step away from, from Brody? And d- did you sell Brody? Uh, or are you still involved in some way, or?
0: No, no, I'm not involved at all. I. It's an interesting story. It's, it's in the book. Uh, uh, I sold half the name, in I think 1997. And that sounds strange to sell half your name. And my lawyer told me I should I should retain 51 percent, and the other person's lawyer said. To him that he should have 51% too but we just decided that we would we would take a chance and go 50 50 and so that was fine and i got royalties for a few years and then in 2001 i sold the last half of my name so it's gone it's it's it sounds a bit strange to sell your name but that's that's basically what 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 happened and uh i'm 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 not involved with the company
1: how did it feel to 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 say goodbye to that chapter of your life.
0: Um, it was fine because when I was when I was running the company, I always wanted. I thought if I worked really hard, then I could maybe get some money in the bank and and I could kind of of coast for one year. That's that's what I wanted. Just to be able to kind of coast for a year, not have it so financially difficult, but. That never happened. It only ever got harder each year. So it was fine to step away. It, it was just time because the because the handbill industry. I, I was looking around. We'd you know you know we'd go down to the trade shows at Interbike at Las Vegas, LA, where wherever they were, and I knew that all the other little builders like Chris Chance and Bon Traeger and Solz, they were all having the same kind of troubles that I was in making ends meet it just got really tough so and so one example i can tell you is that uh i went to this wholesaler and uh i always knew that uh you could buy a frame in taiwan if you ordered a a bunch of them you know you know like a 500 or a thousand you could get a frame that was painted and decaled and it cost $35 US. What? Really? That that, that's, that that was basically for the whole frame. That's not a high-end frame, but no. that's uh, and so I was in the in the wholesalers once and he, he and he showed me this frame and it was it was aluminum and it had a funky down tube and it was painted and clear coated. And he says, how much do you think I can buy this frame for? And I said, $35. He says, nope, $19 US out of Malaysia. <sighs> and so and so, at our shop, when I was buying uh, the Tangay tubing and the bottom brackets and the brazons and all that, our cost, there was no labor. This was just the tubes coming in, $140 Canadian. So how do you compete with 35 or 19 dollars it's very very hard to compete so and after a while as the as as the industry matured people got much more price conscious and it just became harder to sell hand-built frames so it was it was an evolution and i'm glad i was a part of it and then it was after a while because I I was in that industry for 15 years, and, and from the time I woke up in the morning until the time I went to bed, it was all bicycles. It was seven days a week. I'd, I'd be building frames, running the company from Monday to Friday, and then on Saturday, there'd be errands, and then on Sunday, there'd be a, a mountain bike race. So it was
1: – Full on.
0: It was – it was full on and so after fifteen years I was pretty burnt out. So it was it was good to have a change. But I'm I'm glad I was part of it 'cause it was it was an exciting time for quite a number of years. It was
1: pretty cool. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. It's uh I, I can't I, I never imagined that it would it would be that cheap. Um Taiwanese frames. They would come out that cheap. I mean pretty basic, I guess, but I never figured they'd be that cheap. I remember seeing um a video, actually, you know how it's made. I think that's a Canadian video that that show how it's made, and they were showing how bikes are made. And you know, I've I'm mechanically inclined. I kind of get how things are kind of made, but this was so crazy because they basically assembled the tubes in a jig, and it went into an oven, and it just went, it just blasted it. I don't know if they they must prep the 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 miter joints and whatnot together so that and they just hit it with this intense heat and it just all at once every single every single weld was put together at once and then a frame comes out the other side and then it gets dipped and bayed and cleaned and all that stuff but it, it, it took like i don't know what assembly would have taken but it took it seemed like it took seconds to to bond the frame tubes together
0: yeah, maybe that was fusion welding on mm. on some of the really cheap frames. They uh, they can do that. Another way of building mm. frames if you're using lugs, it's called hearth hearth brazing. You assemble the uh, the frame in a jig and you put in some pins and then you put it into the hearth and then it gets it orangey red hot and then you pull it out and you take the brazing rod and you just introduce it in, into the lug. And capillary action sucks the braze in. so So, 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 so you don't have to stand there with a torch waiting. You you just put it into the hearth and it's up to heat in very very short time. So there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of techniques that are used to build frames. And if you if you really want to build a lot of frames. Italy for a long time used to make all these frame building jigs. There'd be one machine and, and all it did was one thing on the frame, but it did it really fast.
1: So hence fifty or twenty dollar frames, right? If they can just pump them out like that. It's a shame that people buy bikes every year. That kind of bugs me a little bit. That people are buying bikes what- every single year you know when stuff like i these like my two bikes here that i ride primarily are five and seven years old primarily because i don't have any money but but they're they're fine there's nothing wrong with those bikes
0: i think the shame is that people want to get into cycling and they go to walmart or canadian tire and they spend 119 dollars and then they they ride the bike and it Doesn't shift or break properly, and it's just so heavy. I can't see that it's a good experience. And then they, the bike gets parked or left, and they say, "Well, maybe cycling's not for me." Whereas if they had a much better bike, or anything better than that, maybe they would like cycling, and it it would become a part of their life. I think that's one of the shames of the cycling industry: is those crap bikes that look like bikes but aren't really bikes.
1: Yeah, and you kind of question the safety of those two, especially if someone's really, really into it and they take one of those bikes on the trail. Like, There's a number of videos out there that show Walmart and Canadian Tire Bikes just getting <laughs> thrashed, right? <Yes. laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I can, uh, it's, it's just a shame because, you know, from a sustainability standpoint, right, yeah. it's just so much material, just digging all, mining all this metal out of the ground just to feed people shitty bikes, you know, it just seems like a shame. Um, is it sacrilegious to ask you, as a frame builder, if you've ever dabbled in carbon fiber?
0: <laughs> no, you can ask. You can ask whatever you want. Uh, I've made motorcycle parts out of carbon fiber, but I I haven't made a frame. No, I just I I like I like steel. You can fix it if yeah. you if you choose the tubing well. You know, like uh, the size of the tube and the wall thickness and all that. You can get a, a, a beautiful ride out of steel. And if anything happens to the frame, you can fix it. Whereas a carbon frame, as as you know, it's it's not recyclable. That's, yeah. that's my that's my understanding anyway.
1: Yeah, that was. I've talked a number of times about that on the podcast. People talking about carbon fiber, and I just I'm just a little bit of a hippie, and when I look at a carbon fiber frame. Um, like a buddy in town here, he bought one of those Chinese made ones, um, super cheap carbon fiber frame. He broke it. Like it was a full suspension frame and a break in the chain stays on it, but that's just going to go in the garbage, right? Like you can't, you know, like, I don't, I don't think you can fix that with just some clear lacquer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> keep the threads together. Like it's, it's done and it goes in the garbage and it'll be there forever. Right. Where I know if I, you know, throw a steel bike, if it ends up in the dump one day, you know, it'll just turn into soil. You know, down the or minerals and and get mined and made into a new bike, maybe at some point. I don't know. I'm pretty yeah. Much.
0: Eventually, yes. Yeah.
1: Um. So we didn't talk too too much about uh, the flashback fabrication. So talk a little bit about that. So how does someone um kind of engage you in conversation about build? This is just building your uh, Excelsior motorcycles. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I started that company in in two thousand five. Well, I had a company. I just changed the name. It became Flashback Fabrications, and that's when I got into building these old bikes. I was building bikes for other people. They'd have a have an engine that they'd buy for maybe five grand, and then they would hire me to build the frame and the gas tank and the oil tank. We're talking old bikes, like early early nineteen hundreds. And then I'd put in maybe, I don't know, ten thousand dollars of labor and and tubing and things like that, and then they'd get a paint job and they suddenly had a bike worth forty, forty five thousand dollars. And I I kinda you know, the light came on a little bit that maybe I need to find a motor and then make the rest of the bike and then I can I can participate in that extra money. So that's kind of how it started out that i and i I, I was looking for a big project because i was I was working on other people's projects, but there wasn't a lot of flow so I leapt into this excelsior project and i basically i call it i call it it, it financial recklessness. I turned away all my existing customers all i did from morning to night was excelsiors and i started living off my line of credit and spending money and it was it was a real sense of freedom and i was doing exactly what i wanted i didn't have anyone looking over my shoulder and that's how the project took off
1: and how many bikes did you say you've you've built already
0: i built about six Six i've sold four I sold four, so that means I'm not I'm not entirely crazy. <laughs> yeah. but I'd I'd like to sell some more. So it it's been a long time since I've sold an Excelsior, so it's really hard for me to keep on with the Excelsiors right now. Uh, I'd I'd like to I've, I've got all the parts mostly to build another three or four, and I, I would like to build some more. But it's been over seven years since I sold one, so it's not, it's hard to work on them still, and yeah, I think that explains it.
1: Just kind of a a bit too nichey, maybe to.
0: Well, I was I was asking a lot of money. I sold a couple for hundred and twenty nine thousand U.S. So I know that's a big hefty price tag for a lot of people. And now that we're in this situation. Mm. Of probably economic downturn, I don't. I I know there's people that always have a lot of money, but to find one of those people and to get them to uh, uh, pull the trigger, so to speak, that's kind of that's kind of tough. But
1: it's possible. It doesn't seem that unreasonable to me, actually. I know, I know, like a couple hundred. What is the exchange rate now? What's that? Half a million dollars Canadian. <laughs> So, (laughs) like hundred and hundred and sixty thousand dollars for something that was built basically from, from the ground up, like that's a beautiful thing, right? But not a lot of people have two hundred grand floating around that they are, you know, one hundred and sixty grand they can buy a bike with. But uh, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. So everyone who's listening to this should reach out to Paul and buy an Excelsior motorcycle.
0: (laughs) I agree with you. Thank you, Steve. I agree.
1: Yeah, there must be something really cool to ride a bike like that. Um, are these kind of performance bikes, like or do they just kind of chug along? Like I don't know I, I don't know if I've ever seen one.
0: Uh, well, I also made a road racer which I was I was uh, I was in the vintage road racing class, so I I I made myself a bike that I call Ru- Ruby Racer and it has an Excelsior motor in it, but it has suspension and a transmission and and brakes and all that. So I can't. I campaigned that for five seasons, and I. That's basically how the how the motor got developed. Because I'd go to the track, I'd break something, or oil would fly out. I'd come back, I'd rip the motor apart, make the modifications, and go back to the next race in a another three, four weeks or whatever. So that was a lot of experience for me learning how to develop a motor. Mm, and yeah. yeah, it was pretty cool so i i raced that bike for five years and uh it tossed me off one time and i ended up in the hospital there again so
1: i had to call it quits
0: it, it's it's good no I, I didn't quit then i i i only quit when i i fell off the board track well i actually that was yeah that was last year and i, I broke my leg badly so i got some metal in my leg
1: so explain explain to people what that is so uh board track is basically like a, it's just a boarded, like a velodrome for motorcycles.
0: Yeah. It's just, it's kind of like NASCAR in a way. And you go round and round, you go left and they had, uh, it was, it was huge back in the early 1900s. There was a, a promoter named Jack Prince and he set up all these board tracks and there was some on the East coast, Atlanta and, uh, there was some on the west coast. There was one in 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 Portland. I think there was one by Santa Cruz, and and they were all over. And some of them were a lot longer. Some it, it, it started out about half mile in length, and then they got bigger and faster, and they got up to two miles in length. And so the bankings at each end were sixty degrees. <laughs> so the it's true you you couldn't walk up the banking, and the riders didn't have to let off on the throttle a lot and so the speeds were over 100 miles an hour and the 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 fans were you know you'd get you'd get a hundred thousand people for a championship race and and there was nothing like it at the time and 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 the riders were like rock stars there was there was cannibal baker and red parkhurst and There was this other guy called Shrimp something, I can't remember his name, but they were household names, and people would flock to those races, and it was dangerous, and that's what ultimately stopped the racing, is that when the bikes crashed, they wouldn't go down, they'd go up into the stands and hit hit spectators, so... (laughs) So so the newspapers started to have a field day with that, and they called them mor- murder cycles. And so that was basically the end. I think the last races were in 1926, in maybe 28. But for a while, you know, for f- maybe 15 years, it was
1: huge. Yeah, that sounds super dangerous to me. Is that? Did you fly out the top of it on a bank or something? I can just see, like, banking and just losing your traction and just, like flying
0: no i uh well on on my my incident the throttle stuck and so Mm -hmm. i didn't want to hit the concrete wall so i just i decided i would just kind of lay the bike down and then uh i don't have have memory of that but i i came to and i was sliding down the track on my back feet first and i looked over my bike was my bike was passing me and then i lost consciousness again and then i came to and the medics were standing over me and they always asked those same questions what's your name what year is it and because i was in florida they said who's the president i didn't <laughs> i don't
1: know that's
0: a, that's a tough question for a canadian you know? sure, who's the president and and you responded
1: you responded how's my bike is my bike okay
0: <laughs> no i was kind of I was kind of out of it, I think. I was kind of in and out of consciousness. But uh, anyway, I got the questions handled somehow, and uh, and so they figured I was kind of okay.
1: They released you. Well, you've lived a very exciting life, Paul, between the board track racing and fabrication and bike building and teaching, and um, it's it's been really fascinating to talk to you.
0: Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Um, do you want to tell people how they can maybe follow along with what you're doing?
0: Yeah, if you go to if you go to YouTube and you type in Paul Brody's shop, it'll pop up. And if you subscribe, I would thank you.
1: I did. Yeah. I'm subscribed. Thank you. <laughs> so everyone thank you. subscribe.
0: Thanks, Steve. Yeah. No worries.
1: And on social networking, you're on um you're on Instagram. You show off some of your um, fabrication on there as well.
0: Yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm 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 Brody eight one nine one. So if you follow me there, I appreciate that too. Yeah, and That'd they can reach out
1: to you on social because that's how we connected. So uh if they have any other questions for you. But man, I really appreciate talking to you and uh and I'm gonna call you a legend, but I don't want you to feel old because that's not my intention. <laughs>
0: I'm just going to keep on chugging. I'm going to keep on making stuff as long as I can. And if I can inspire some people, that's that's great. Because I I think that's one of my roles as well, as to maybe inspire the younger crowd to do something with their hands. That'd be
1: good. Yeah, and I've heard you're a great teacher. So people should uh, keep abreast of kind of what's going on with the uh, Frame Building 101 course. We'll see what happens when we... When we come out of this COVID nineteen crap, we can get on with our lives. Hopefully soon.
0: Yes, yeah. I agree.
1: Right on. Well, thanks again, Paul. And um, we'll we'll do another one. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you, Steve.
0: I'll
1: uh, I would do that. Yes. Awesome. I had a good time. Thanks, Paul.
0: Thank you. Bye. Right.
1: I want to thank Paul Brody again for his time and. As always, thank you guys for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed the chat. Uh, Lots more coming down the line. And uh, I'm really looking looking forward to sharing them with you. So again, some thank yous to my new patrons. I want to thank Rebound Cycle and Cycling 101 for their support. And, um, you know, I forgot to mention uh, Doug Dunlops. uh, You can find him online on social at Cold Bike. If you go to Instagram and search for at Cold Bike, you'll find him there. And uh, I encourage you to do that. Reach out. Wish him well uh, for his recovery after his uh, accident being hit by a car. Pretty crazy. Um, so, yeah, again, I uh, just want to thank everybody. And uh, those promo codes, again, uh, NACBAR. You can use the promo code RYAN uh, to save 20%. And if you spend over $50, bucks, you are going to save on shipping zero shipping actually and then uh, cycling 101 their promo code 101 vip 20 to save 20 percent off a bike fit or a consultation so i want to thank you guys for that and um i want to thank for the thank you for the voice memos i've i have a couple in the queue now that i'm going to be putting at the beginning of the podcast so please be sure to send me those i love hearing from you if you want to reach out to me you can my 40 podcast at gmail.com you can send me Voice intros, feedback, guest suggestions, um, and the best way you can support me—the easiest way you can support the MyBack40 podcast—is subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. If you head on over to your favorite listening platform, you give me a five-star rating—that helps immensely. And don't forget, you can head on over to myback40.org/support um, to check out some of the support options if you wanted to um, donate to the project, and I would really appreciate that if you did. So. Um, again, I hope you enjoyed the convo. Uh, I certainly did. I certainly love bringing the conversations to you and, uh, yeah, let's look out for one another. If you're driving a car, look out for the bikes and the pedestrians. Um, if you're biking, keep your head on a swivel, make sure you know what's going on around you and, uh, you'll live to ride another day. So let's take care of each other. Be well, get out there, ride bikes and keep the rubber side down.